It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Celebrate this July 4th with a special presentation of A Capital Fourth. Join your host, Vanessa Williams, with performances from Sea to Shining Sea, starring Jimmy Buffett, Gladys Knight, Alan Jackson, Cynthia Erivo, Pentatonix, Renee Fleming, Train, Jennifer Nettles, Mickey Guyton, Jimmy Allen, Ali'i Cravalho, Laura Osnes, Ali Stroker, and the greatest live fireworks display in the USA. It's A Capital Fourth, sponsored by the Boeing Company and American Airlines, Sunday, July 4th, 8, 7 Central only on PBS. Hello, my name is Dave Hanready, and there will be no popcorn. Welcome to episode two of the No Popcorn Film and Music Podcast, the offshoot, the side project, the indie film that nobody would support at the studio of the No Encore Podcast. Our first episode recently was on Bohemian Rhapsody. As noted, we are part of the No Encore Podcast on the Headstuff Podcast Network, so I assume most people listening to this are still fans of No Encore uh, episode 2 coming at you episode 1 was a nightmare to put together but we got there in the end we got some really nice feedback on it including one person who said that uh, The Godfather isn't as good as Bohemian Rhapsody because Bohemian Rhapsody won more awards I guess that's what you're going to do if you try and rattle the Freddie Mercury cage joining me once again on this voyage is David Higgins Dave it's good to be back I'm glad to have you back man uh, especially for this one this one's been in the making for a little while I think since <laughs> since I first known you there's been a seed there. I think so. I mean, it's one of those things that's constant in my life since it arrived in 2004. It is, of course, Metallica, some kind of monster. For me, for my money, the best music documentary of all time. Um, yeah, after the rewatch, I'm definitely ready to go there. Um, funnily enough, I, I think you, you, you'd watched it way before I did. Um, the first time I actually watched it, I don't know if I told you this, was uh, when we did 
Hardwired to self-destruct on No Encore. You're joking. Yeah, I missed it. I missed it when it, when it came out. Um, I was on a bit of a Metallica sabbatical, if you will. I mean, like, understandable, given the previous material you had to work with. But no, no, I was working in Extravision at the time uh, when this came out. And as soon as it came out on DVD, on digital video disc, double disc, actually, I uh, <laughs> purchased my first purchase. Because, like, the weird thing about this was... This was critically acclaimed. This was like Sight and Sound magazine, Empire magazine, back when it was good. Everyone was like, this is a really good film, like standard four out of five, eight out of ten. You know, one of the selling points was, even if you think Metallica are fucking rubbish, you need to see this film. Because uh, apparently uh, it was full of heart, full of humor, full of sadness, and full of real compelling, strange situations. And in many cases, the real life Spinal Tap. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange one for a band to make. Um... I guess we're probably going to get into it a little bit. Like, why? Why would you? Why would you invite someone in to do this? Because this could go. Could, like, this could be catastrophically bad for them. I don't think it. It does in the end. It reminds me of. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the movie The Four Year Plan. Um, it was about Queens Park Rangers in like 2007, and Flavio Briatore and Bernie Eccleston had just bought the team and like saved them from financial ruin. And they basically brought in a film crew to film them, like a kind of a, a puff piece of like, this is us rescuing one of the great uh, English clubs, great London clubs, and bringing it you know, back to where it needs to be. And it was just an absolute disaster. And what they did is they basically gave the, the filmmakers carte blanche to, in terms of access, they could film whatever they want. They didn't really give them a structure and they also gave them final cut to the filmmakers. So the filmmakers were just like, we're being paid by QPR to do whatever he wants and then they brought out this thing that makes, you know, Briatore, Bernie Eccleston look quite bad. I don't think that's what happens here. Well, maybe we'll move into it a little bit later, but um, just before we get to it, I suppose, you, you've been watching some films. It's you were true. supposed to watch some kind of monster on the weekend. Yeah, I was, yeah. And I got a text to say, I've watched three films today, none of which <laughs> are the movie we were supposed to have watched. That's what happened, yeah. I was on another one of those runs of just like constant working and, you know, doing the podcast and everything else. And like the broken, boring record that I am where I was like, I'm really fucking tired. So my weekend was like, okay, it's my salvation. You know, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to go to my couch on the, in the living room and I'm just going to watch movies and TV and eat bad food. And I I did that and I watched three films in a row the plan was legitimately to sit down and watch some kind of monster and in the end I watched uh, in order Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse how was that I actually still haven't seen that yet it's a delight yeah add me, add me to the endless chorus it's so much fun and it has you know kind of moments of shock and poignancy as well it was just it was a real treat I'd highly recommend it so I enjoyed that that kicked off my day then I watched Serenity the Matthew McConaughey Anne Hathaway Nightmare. You watched it without me, huh? <laughs> I mean, you said it wasn't in the cinema. It wasn't. It, did, it didn't really get the release in the end because Sky had it. Yeah. it's. I mean, can you explain what this film is? Um, I just watched the trailer of it and it just looked like hot trash. And then apparently there's like a large, like, does McConaughey have, have some sort of like Ahab obsession with a large like carp or something? In it? Tuna. <laughs> tuna, tuna. He's a rogue fisherman with a dark past in this kind of strange town that may or may not be like a real one. And that's kind of a plot point. And Hathaway is a femme fatale hamming it up and she comes to visit him. They have a past. She wants him to murder her abusive husband played by Jason Clark, eating all of the scenery. And essentially the reason that this film has got a bit of notoriety about it is because there's a shocking twist in it that is so out there and stupid and dumb and actually like annoyingly enough isn't even telegraphed someone actually says it at one point in a throwaway bit of dialogue and then they reveal it 
And I figured it out even before that. I was like, I think this is what's going on. And it was. And it is legitimately jaw-dropping. But it's, it doesn't sustain. It's not even like... I mean, I'd say see it to see that happen. I almost want to spoil it. But it's so... <laughs> it's just so maddeningly dumb. And it's made by Stephen Knight. He made, like, Locke and made other things, including, like... I guess his track record is questionable he, now. Is he, he Peaky Blinders as he well? He made Peaky Blinders. He also co-created Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Okay. Which is interesting. So he enjoys ham. Yeah, and this is a this is a big ham sandwich of a movie, and it's bad. Diane Lane's in it as well. Jimon Honshu's in it, mate. Jimon fucking Honshu popping up. I also just saw a movie with Jimon Honshu, but please tell me your third, your third. The film. third film I watched, of course, of course, <laughs> naturally. <laughs> How do you follow those two? Why, of course, you rewatch for the first time since the cinema, Miami Vice, two thousand six. Cocaine, the movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, any given Sunday is Cocaine, the movie, also starring Jamie Foxx. Uh, how, how do you feel about Miami Vice, two thousand six, the Michael Mann edition? Yeah, I'm going to surprise you here. I actually also haven't seen it I've ever. Been, yeah, I've been meaning to watch it. You know this, and I think you you've you've buried it away because you know that you'll probably just get into an argument with me all the you time. You don't like Michael Mann. I don't dislike him but I'm not as I'm not as pro man as you are. You're not a man's man. Not a man's man. I mean he's got problems. I haven't watched Black Hat or Public Enemies and Miami Vice is questionable. It's questionable film. It's got a lot wrong with it. It's got a lot going for it. I really want to love it more than I do. It's a mess. I mean, it's a fucking mess. You don't understand. Like, I consider myself a seasoned film watcher, and but this was like watching The West Wing. I was like, I have no idea what's going on. I was just like, I have no idea what is going on. They're not explaining the plot in any way. And that's refreshing, but it's also like, I don't know what they're doing or why they're in this room, who that is. I felt like my fucking mother watching this film. I was like, Jesus Christ. It's also at the height of like Colin Farrell not in a great place in real life. Yeah, I think... Which works for the character. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, like I'm fascinated by Colin Farrell. Like it, that that was was that the last time that he kind of had like big leading man before he kind of he disappeared for a while. Not disappeared, but like he kind of like moved into character acting roles, and then he tried to like recash in that um, yeah stock that he got with like Total Recall. But like I feel like Miami Vice is like oh, I need to take a break. I think so. I mean, like in Bruges, Bruges came was af- a couple years came after, after yeah. it, but that's also a bit of an indie kind of like you know one of those things that just kind of blew up. I think he's really good in Miami Vice. I know people don't. I I think he actually is, and I like a lot of it. It's very Michael Mann. It's so stupidly over the top. But I mean, and I watched like the director's cut version. How long is that? <laughs> 146 minutes. But here's the thing, and I've said it already, but I'll say it again. It is genuinely, genuinely worth wading through, and you really do wade through all 146 minutes to get to the ending where they fucking blare Auto Rock by Mogwai <laughs> over the soundtrack, and Colin Farrell looks sad because of what's occurring, and it just has one of those great endings that's not really an ending at all, and you're like, that was fucking awesome, even though the film is littered with problems, particularly with the, fil- the female characters, which is not uh, unusual. Really, in a Michael Mann film? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> like, Naomi Harris gets to be a damsel in distress twice. <laughs> like, Jesus fucking Christ. So, yeah, I, that was my Saturday. And I sat there, right, approximately as, like, midnight was, the witching hour was closing in. And I said, am I going to watch some kind of monster now? No. Am I going to watch another film now, though? Probably not. And I went to bed. But then on Sunday afternoon, the first thing I did, the first thing I did, man, was watch some kind of monster. I think that's the first thing I did on Saturday morning. But, um, yeah. So it's, I'm sorry, it says here in the running order that you went to the cinema. I did. I went to the cinema yesterday. Oh, okay. I went to see Captain Marvel. Oh, wow. Oh, so like you're not one of those people who hates female-led action movies. Um, did you go begrudgingly? Did you buy a ticket? <laughs> <again>? Yeah. <laughs> I bet it was I full whack of, and so used to going to the movies on a Tuesday. I went on a Monday. I went to like the big, the big 
screen that you have to pay extra for. I paid like 13 euro to see this film. Did you go solo? I went solo. I was just on, on the way back from work. It's like, I'll pop in to wow. Captain Marvel. Okay. It's not very good. I read the Wikipedia synopsis because I hate women. No, it's because <laughs> I was like, this looks like garbage. It, like, it looks terrible. It looks really bad. Like, it looks like they've coated the screen in some kind of strange gloss. Yeah, I feel I feel sorry for Brie Larson. And I feel, to an extent, sorry for the filmmakers because this was supposed to be... Marvel's moment is like we can f- we're finally making a movie with a female lead, which is refreshing to finally see them do it. Twenty three films in, but they they've they've done it. Um, I guess like the easiest film to compare it to, compare it to within Marvel is Black Panther in terms of representation. But like Black Panther got an opportunity to just make a movie that is in under the Marvel umbrella, but doesn't really have to deal with anything else that's happening in the Marvel world. While this is just like it's one part Captain Marvel origin story. It's there's like it's like a prequel to everything that happens in Shield and the MCU. There's um, there's like an alien war, a Kree versus Skrull thing happening, that was basically just like shades of Palestine against versus Israel. It's like pretty heavy stuff. Um, there is really obnoxious '90s needle drops all over the place. I'm aware of the just a girl bit. Yeah. Also, she's rocking a Nine Inch Nails t-shirt, which obviously I'm You're pro. a big fan of. Yeah. They, also, is, a Guns N' Roses t-shirt. Is there any Nine Inch Nails in the soundtrack? There is not. Interesting. They used wearing this together now on the first trailer for the Avengers back in the day, which was kind of a surprise. Did, did your they? laptop just make a noise there? Dude, I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> I'm using paper. I actually, I did. I wrote nine pages of notes for this podcast. Nine. <laughs> I know I write notes for the podcast ever, but this one made me do it. So Captain Marvel, um, I guess uh, Ben Mendelsohn in the villain role yet again? He, yeah, he's he's probably the best part about it. Not surprisingly, uh, the majority of it, he is covered in uh, weird makeup, scroll makeup with <laughs> strange ears. Um, his character has an utterly kind of bonkers arc he has like four arcs where he's like the villain then he's like you know the hero then he is comedic relief um has some moments with a cat samuel L. jackson is seemingly playing an entirely different character to all the ones he's in and all the other films where he's like comic relief uh yeah it's a bit of a mess jude law jude law's having a bit of fun yeah and that benning is good like it, again it's that thing where marvel's just like this is Utterly daft, but like we can just get really good actors to like fill this out. And you say you feel sorry for Brie Larson and the filmmakers, but mate, it opened up to a four hundred and fifty-five million dollar worldwide opening weekend. That's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. It's going to make over a billion. Yeah, I mean, it's going to do incredibly well. Um, I think it would be nice to see them. I, I feel, I feel like they they have a successful film, but I feel like the constraints of like having to make it within this system of you know, serving so many different masters while they can't just tell like a a pretty standard story. Okay, Uh, we're going to tell a a story on this podcast. But before we do, this podcast actually represents something of a redemption story for you. Because as you noted, you were previously on the Encore back in the day when we reviewed Hardwired to Self-Destruct, an album that we found surprisingly good, if a bit bloated. And you made a mistake that you committed to throughout the episode, which has haunted you ever since. It has. I, when talking about St. Anger, when I intended to say that there were no solos on the album, there was a strict no solo policy. <laughs> I said the word riff, which if you've listened to St. Anger, you will know that there is nothing but riffs on this. So I said it repeatedly, and you all sold me down the river by not correcting me like a good friend would. Well, I mean, I think I was just caught up in the moment. 
We were discussing say, anger, my favourite subject matter, apparently. I kind of thought that when I saw you had this written down that you were going to p- prepare an audio bed of, of just me constantly saying riff and slow down. Okay, I guess well, there's still time. Well, here's what we'll do, right? Before we kick into St. Anger, uh, or rather, I should say, some, some kind, kind of monster, monster, the documentary profiling the making of St. Anger and much, much more. Uh, you've heard a little snippet from the start of this episode. Let's have another little blast of St. Anger, particularly a certain snare drum. negotiate the release in exchange for the release of an inmate. Agree with that? So there you go. Yeah, I mean, look, St. Anger, it's been talked to death. It's an album that was widely hated. Uh, I purchased it on day of release. Uh, I've gone back and forth on this album. I'm, I've wondered if it's good, if it's bad. I think I had to come down the side of bad. There's a lot of things I like on it, including the snare drum. Now, in this documentary, which runs for how many minutes, Dave? 222? I think it's around that time, yeah. yeah. Uh, they don't mention the snare drum. No one ever says... Sorry, hmm. not 222. Two hours and 22. Two hours and 22, yeah. 141 minutes. Um, essentially, no one ever says snare drum which I find strange because apparently um, previously like Lars is like so fastidious in the studio that he would like spend months just working on a drum sound while this was just like I guess I'll do yeah I mean it remains a point of contention the film that supported it however I think is a joy and I would put it out there that this is one of the fastest near two and a half hour movies I've ever seen. I mean, I, this is legitimate. I swear it now. I think, I haven't kept count because I'm not a fucking lunatic. But since 2004, I think this viewing now, I think this marks me in double figures. I think I've seen this film 10 times. You're I've an actual sh- madman. I've shown it to friends. I've studied it forensically. It's got it all. But how did this happen? Well, um, so this movie is directed by Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky. Um, they would have come to prominence in the early 90s. They made a couple of documentaries, um, Paradise Lost. There was actually like essentially a trilogy of them, uh, which deals with the West Memphis Three. Um, if you remember that case, was um, some teenagers were basically um, accused of murdering another kid it was kind of at the height of satanic panic and um, one of them was a big metalhead and um, the kind of thing that kind of just seems to come around in every decade like you know a decade later it's like Marla Manson gets blamed for stuff um, so anyway the filmmakers they wanted to use some Metallica's music uh, in the documentary and at that time Metallica had never basically licensed anything to a film so they got in touch with their management basically kind of gave them what the case was and they were licensed uh, Welcome Home Sanitarium and I think two others. They went back to them for the sequel, managed to get like 13 tracks um, and then kind of developed a little bit of a relationship, uh, particularly with Lars Ulrich and Jason Newstead, um, Bruce Sanofsky and Joe Berlinger were then working on like a VH1 thing about Metallica and there'd always been talk that Metallica were going to do a movie and they didn't really know what that movie was Um Berlinger and them didn't really know what it was, um, and then in I think it was like the year two thousand. Do you know? Do you know uh, Joe Berlinger's uh, foray into fiction? Oh yes, I do. Book, his his book, <laughs> book of Shadows, Blair Witch Two. Yeah, the sequel to like one of the greatest box office successes of all times. The great, the, probably like the best profit independent movie ever made. Probably the highest grossing film in nineteen ninety nine. So he went to a studio 
I think it was Artisan, and was looking to get another thing made. And they basically brought him in under the auspices. That it was like, pitch us this. And he pitched it to them. They're like, yeah, we don't care about that. But we have the sequel <laughs> to the Blair Witch Project. So he kind of got on board with that. Um, and Killed the franchise. He killed the franchise. Like the way, the way he, he sells it is that he wanted to do something completely different. So he wrote a script that was like a satire. He was like, you can't just have a sequel. Everyone, everyone knows this is fake now. Like maybe some people don't, but for the most part, everyone knows that it was like a very, very clever advertising campaign and use of like early internet that got people to go see this movie. Can we talk about Blair Witch for just a second? Because I don't know when, that, when else I'll ever get to do this. So I saw it at the time in 1999, right? I went to the cinema with my brother and my sister. My brother had been in America he came home. He saw it in the States because this was back in that kind of weird time where films would come out like six months yeah. there and then it would take a while for them to get here. So he said that, you know, you got to see this movie. It's fucking terrifying. Uh, so I went with him and my sister and I'm the youngest. My sister was 25 at the time. Went to see it in like Drogheda in like screen fucking six of like the terrible local cinema, like really, really bad room. And I was watching it and for the most part I was like, I'm enjoying this. I think it's very good. I'm not terribly scared by it though. And you could sense the restlessness in the crowd. A lot of people weren't enjoying their indie horror film, black and white, shaky cam with no jump scares experience. But I found it really creepy. By the end of it, my sister was getting more and more unnerved. And literally, as they find the house, she was ready to leave. And my brother was like, no, 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 this is the end of the film. Like, you got to stay, you got to stay. Then the film ends with that infamous ending, which I think is incredibly powerful. And we went and left the cinema. And my sister was bawling her eyes out crying all the way home. Uh, 25 year old woman and like then we got home and I was fine I was totally fine I was totally fine uh, and I was playing my fucking PC at the time I believe some shit golf game or something and later on my brother who'd been watching like Caligula I think on the television of all things I remember this very vividly Malcolm McDowell shag epic Caligula <laughs> Sexathon, and then essentially he was like, "Alright, I'm going to bed." And then I was like, "Oh no, so am I." Because I, I, and that's when I got scared. Yeah. And then my brother and I slept in the same room. And then at one stage, my sister like, "Oh, oh yeah, get this. It gets, it gets even funnier." We were watching Wolf, Jack Nicholson's <laughs> Wolf, on the television at like two a.m. on Channel Four. And my sister like burst in the door, and I was like, "Oh Jesus Christ!" And she was again crying and scared, and asked my brother if he would go in and stay in the same room as her. And I was like, "No, he's not going." We all slept in the same room together. I got one hour like of sleep. Like the Waltons? Completely, yeah. <laughs> and that that film, man, that ending, that last shot of Blair Witch has fucked me up to this day. If it's two in the morning and I'm in my room and I can't sleep and I just think Blair Witch, I'm fucked, I'm done. It's got me. It is an incredible shot. It reminds me, and I find it reminds me of a, a, a shot in a film that I love because of how mundane the framing is where it's just like, it's like, it's not a close-up. It's not, it's just like there, someone standing in the corner. So it very much reminds me of... Uh, Firewalk with me, mm. uh, Bob in the in the corner, oh, and it's just like it's a it's a very like bland looking shot. He's just like standing there. It's like it's not a close up on his like you know Frank Silva's really intense face. It's just there. It's like it's mundane. It's something that you could visualize just being in that corner over there. You're terrified, now, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, <laughs> I just looked over. Okay, so the point is, I think Blair Witch Project retains a lot of power twenty years on. Blair Witch Project Two, on the other hand, not so good. Uh, yeah, so uh, Joe Berlinger he made this. Uh, it basically went terribly, and he was like, well, that's me done in the world of fiction. Um, so <laughs> around this time, uh, it was about 2001 or early 2000s, Metallica kind of had like an off year. They had brought out I Disappear, but aside from that, they were kind of like trying to lay low, apart from Lars, who was, who was waging war against Napster. <laughs> um, 
So they came to Berlinger again, essentially his their label, Electra, and um, their Q Prime management. Q Prime management, yeah. yeah. And they wanted to do what essentially was an infomercial. And the idea was that they'd basically do the history of Metallica. Um, they'd go in and record them, uh, recording a few bits in the new album, and then they would sell this to networks. So basically, like, you know, late night all the channels have gone off air and it's like, there's an ad for Metallica. It's like, call 1-800-Metallica to get, like, ride the lightning or kill them all. So they brought them in to film and Berlinger and Sanofsky kind of being documentary filmmakers were like, we're doing this kind of for the money. We like these guys, but there's something more happening. Uh, around this time as well was when uh, Jason Newstead had left the band. Which is the dramatic thread of this movie. Now, you raise a couple of interesting points there, Newstead being one of them. But first of all, I will say, I think, you know, in the grand tr- tradition of documentaries, like oftentimes the best documentary is when you stumble upon another thing while you're making the thing that you're making. And that thing is more compelling and it overshadows things like capturing the Freedmans being one of them, like the, yeah. the imposter being another. Um, it's, it's not always the rule, but when it happens, it, like, you, you know, it's gold. And there's an amazing moment in this uh movie but halfway through where James Heffield has come back from rehab and he's like not enjoying having cameras all around him and they're having this group meeting and essentially he's like do we need to keep doing this I mean like I don't know if I want this documentary to even exist and it's the one time that Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky appear on screen and they're like hey listen you know if you guys don't want to do it like you know there might not need to be a documentary we could just scrap it and they're all but hiding their crossed fingers behind their back because they know that they've captured something special here they know that they've it's it's totally gone off script and they're encountering this very strange situation and thankfully they pressed ahead. So, Jason Newstead is the dramatic threat of this movie, him exiting the band. He was the bass player, he replaced Cliff Burton who died tragically and there was always the sense that Newstead was not, you know, like he they didn't He was treat, never accepted. He was never accepted. They like he was barely on like on albums, like they kind of like fucked with his production. They apparently didn't treat him terribly well on like like in the band allegedly, who knows. He was no, they, there was actually there was an, an interview um just before he left the band in Playboy. It's like a real Warts and all. It's one of those classic Playboy interviews. Yeah, it's one of those classic Playboy interviews. (laughs) (laughs) And I was reading for (laughs) the interview. (laughs) This is the thing. Apparently, Playboy legitimately has had some great, like, in like uh, journalism and features over the years, but of course it's Playboy, it's, so yeah. um, I, I read it for the articles. In some people's case, was a legitimate thing. So yeah, Newstead was. He he said that in the early days he was like quite badly hazed, like in kind of like you know waking up in the middle of the night destroying his hotel room. Um, then he kind of said there was like deeper ways that they did it, which he essentially said is like they turned my base down on Injustice for All, like they. They never, they never accepted him. Um, one of the kind of the main threads of this movie is them actually coming, probably for the first time, to accept the death of Cliff Burton and kind of move on. Um, but yeah, him leaving was kind of the what caused the the major the major crisis in Metallica that leads them to bring in the great. <laughs> performance enhancement coach a man by the name Phil of Tell. Phil Tell who's introduced in this film five minutes in the first thing we see in this movie is uh, some text on the screen the classic opening scroll not narrated by Morgan Freeman sadly which informs us that at the time that this was made Metallica had sold over 90 million albums worldwide do you know how many they've sold now? Um, I would wager that it's not a lot more it's well, not, like it's it's it, it's, it's more it's obviously. significant but it's not a crazy amount like 120? 125 yeah. yeah there you go and like Napster, mate. <laughs> very good. <laughs> so yeah, so they've brought in a performance enhancement coach slash therapist to be with them at all times, who costs forty thousand dollars a month. Do you know where they got him from? Well, I think he said his background was in sports. So he he kind of 
came to prominence because he worked for the St. Louis Rams when they won the Super Bowl. I can't remember the year. Um, but then he also, he mentions in the movie that he was working with another band trying to stop them from breaking up. Do you know what the band was? Fleetwood Mac. Rage Against the Machine. You're joking. So apparently Tom Morello got in touch with them. And I like to think that, I don't know if you've been watching like the newer seasons of Kirby Enthusiasm where Jimmy Kimmel like foists uh, <laughs> like a, a maid that he doesn't want on Larry David. And I kind of feel like it just like... <laughs> The Rage had him on the 40 grand a month retainer and they're like, oh, we can't really get rid of him. And it's like, unless we can get someone else to pick it up. <laughs> but anyway, so that's that's how he kind of comes into the scene. He dominates this film in a strange way. Like he's almost like the fifth member of the band and he is every caricature that you would imagine. He wears terrible sweaters. Uh, he speaks with a cadence that is genuinely annoying and he says a lot of crap. Like it's it's inspirational quote guff and very much the the look of a man throughout who does not want to lose this forty grand a month retainer. So okay, so this film, I mean, like it's very long. It covers an interesting period of time, and I guess I want to ask you. I mean, like you know, how do you think Metallica come across in this? I mean, like, do you have sympathy for them at all? I think the first time you watch it, you laugh a lot at them. You know, it is a very very funny film, um, particularly. And, you know, it's it's hard to say, like, uh, James Heffield was, like, generally going through some stuff here, but, like, his behavior is very petulant. He's quite childish, um, particularly when he when he comes back from rehab and he has his kind of his four hours a day. It borders on, I don't bowl on Shabbos. Like, it's it's that <laughs> level of, like... <laughs> yeah, his four hours a day is, we can only work from 12 noon until 4 p.m. Um, and that's it. The rest of the band have to shut down. They can't, like, hang out in the studio and make more music without him. I think Lars by his nature, is a pretty ridiculous human being at times. Like, I think he, and in fairness to him, I think he would probably admit that himself. One of the interesting things about this is that while there is the two directors, I kind of see Lars as like the auteur of this film where he really, really pushed for it. There was times when he went to uh, Berlinger and Sanofsky and he'd like give input because one of the strange things about this documentary is that um, Metallica paid for every single bit of this like this isn't you know a production studio going in like this was as I said like even when Heffield came back from rehab it still was by all accounts an infomercial that developed into something different um, but and by the end of this I mean like it's coming up like day 680 so this, the, like, yeah. one of the longest shoots ever gives <laughs> Eyes Wide Shut run for its money <laughs> these guys are getting paid yeah, and and the the funny thing is is like that they they were getting paid, so they had like a four man crew. Um, the two of them live in New York, so they didn't film every day because obviously, like when Hetfield was away, um, in rehab, they went back to New York and they were kind of like again, like like Phil on retainer, like just waiting <laughs> to to come back, and it's just like I'll oh, fly us back from to San Francisco. This I was I was wondering I, I meant to look it up like this must be one of the most expensive albums ever made just for all the kind of ancillary things that exist within it so like you have like a performance enhancement coach you have like a full documentary <laughs> team for six hundred days you have an enormous budget on like white vests <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> the James Hetfield wardrobe special yeah uh, I've written down here early impressions of the boys James a troubled goof. Lars Napoleon complex and Kirk just get the hell out of there, man. Yeah, oh, Kirk is such a he's such a lovely man. He's so adorable, and also you got Bob Rock, super bassist, who wears terrible leather jackets, looks and sounds like Michael McKean, and desperately wants to be the fourth member of the band permanently. Yeah, he's he's producing he's, the album also, like and them. He's there. He's like there. He's kind of their onset manager slash dad. I find it interesting as well. This is this is the end of Bob Rock and Metallica. 
like there's a there's a throwaway line when uh, Rob Trujillo gets uh, hired, and they're like, oh, "I guess we got to fire Bob." And it's like, "Yeah, he actually kind of did." <laughs> well, he said uh, with regards to making the album from scratch, he said the post Jason Newstead, he said the idea is that it should sound like a band getting together in a garage and playing for the first time. Only that band is Metallica. Yeah, like I know we didn't kind of touch on this just with saying anger. It's like they so. They they changed the way that they approached making albums. So so previously Metallica has been Ulrich Hetfield. They write everything. They bring it to the lads. Uh, Kirk Hammett does a solo and kind of that's it. Hetfield writes all the lyrics. But this time they were like, everyone can do something. Everyone can write lyrics. It's such a strange. I find I find everything about what they did to make this album. Considering all the stuff that they were going through, they put so many parameters. On trying to create art, it's like that. It's like it's doomed. From yeah, the, from the get-go. I mean, there are scenes when they're sitting in the studio and they're like, they're all they're all writing lyrics at the same time on Bob Rock's command when they hear the music. The initial sessions were recorded at a place called the Presidio, in which James Heffield rocks dungarees that are approximately fifteen years, um, you know, before Urban Outfitters would have stocked them. So he was ahead of his time in that regard. James Heffield looks like he's in The Offspring in this film. He really does. <laughs> And also, I mean, like, something that is, like, this is not a revelation from the documentary, but you get up close and personal with it. James Heffield, for all of his good and all of his bad, is not a good vocalist or a lyricist. God, no. I mean, it's genuinely shocking in places. Like, it's it's like watching a robot learn how to sing and write lyrics, and they're kind of going with them, and it's just, it's 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 especially clunky and clanky. What is the lyric where he's... Uh, is it is on some kind of monster where there are so he's many. he's singing it and it's like it is so robotic, <laughs> and then then you actually kind of see where Bob Rock earns his money, <coughs> and he's like, oh, you did something in in all that garbage. There was one moment there where you had like a nice syncopated rhythm, and he's like, just do that for the whole thing, and then he doesn't. It. It's like, oh, that's not so bad. It's an anger of the album, and we will be referring to it a lot because to be fair, it is like the embryo of this entire thing. I mean, it's up there for maybe the most the worst lyrics on an album ever like it's consistently shocking from song to song and I mean there's even moments where like it's just James Heffield is like spitballing about something in his life and he's like you know these are the hands that and this is the face and then they're like oh you keep going with that and then they're like he's like oh no it's like some kind of Frankenstein or something and then they're like some kind of monster some <laughs> kind of monster and then it cuts them like singing some kind of monster and then you've got a bit at the end where Heffield's giving out about like record labels and having to or, or radio stations and having to like do the corporate thing man and he's like uh, I don't want to do this bullshit radio promo and Cliff Bernstein their manager who looks like fucking Peter Jackson who's been time travelled he says like if you don't do it they're going to bury you when the album comes out and Heffield is shocked by this he's like people would really do that they'd give us bad press if we didn't do the thing that they want us to do for them that's terrible and he's like it's like you know uh, wash wash my back so I you know you don't so stab, you won't stab my, mine, mine. Yes. <laughs> <And then> very <laughs> mixing <laughs> then it cuts to you know wash your back so you won't stab mine and like <laughs> get in bed with your old cat like some of these lyrics are out of control we'll get to them um, but yeah they mentioned that you know they, they wrote a big fucking mission statement uh, about the album excuse me what's a mission statement my name is James Hetfield <laughs> They wrote this mission statement, which again, the, the scenery of Metallica writing a fucking mission statement and, and having someone read it out. Uh, we come now to make the album of our life. In many ways, they did, I think. Yeah, it's, it is it is a strange one. Like, um, Although 
they kind of seem to want to reject everything that came before in their history, which I think is like very interesting. They kind of were like, this is everything in the past is gone. Um, Cliff's gone. Jason's gone. It's just the three of us now. And yeah, they kind of ran with that. Very early on, though, there's stumbling blocks because James fucks off for a while, his alcoholism creeping in. He goes to Russia, right? Drinks an insane amount of vodka and murders a bear. Yeah, uh, on his son's first birthday. Yeah, he misses the misses his uh, his kid's birthday. So that when you're talking to talking about like how do I feel about watching it now? Like first time, I was like, that's kind of hilarious in a sense. It, but then rewatching, it's like that's so grim. Seeing someone so oblivious to how terrible what they're saying is like like even if he if he had not missed his son's birthday it's like don't go shoot a bear in russia mate the bear had literally he, he they were like oh did you eat it and he's like no we couldn't eat it because it had been hibernating so it hadn't really eaten anything so it, it was essentially like toxic waste bear <laughs> <laughs> but you know otherwise i would have eaten it um yeah it's grim there's a photograph of him with it and i mean but then he's like oh you know, would have been nice to be there for my son's birthday. I toasted him. I gave an astrovia to him. And it's like, oh, man. Yeah. Like, he had really bad problems. He really did. And he kind of goes to sort himself out. But before that happens, I guess, to illustrate this, they play some music and from a song, right? Uh, the song is called Temptation. Didn't make the album. It didn't make the album. So you might ask, well, if it didn't make Sin Anger, how bad could it be? Have a listen. Temptation I mean, there's bad and there's bad and then there's bad. Yeah, and this is a particularly clunky bit of direction where... It's terrible. It's it's him singing this incredibly in terrible song that just goes, Temptation, wreck my head. Temptation, make you dead. Temptation, sucks my soul. Temptation, fill no hole. <laughs> uh, intercut with, you know... All the temptations of the touring life, which yeah. is basically kegs of beer and boobs. And they show this from, I guess, Metallica videos that were made in the 80s. Yeah, they've been filming all their tours for years. And it's them, like, you know, going, like, just like James Heffield showering with women while beer is being poured down his throat. And he's going, no, 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 I can't say no. And I'm like, really? Like this? And, and he's like, Temptations are an important song to me, man. You know, as he discusses later in the film. Um, we get intercuts. Jason Newstead was interviewed for this documentary and i guess he was interviewed for maybe he archive interviews as well like he does pop up in the film every now and then and i think he's the secret baby face of this film yeah i mean um that means it's, good guy for any non-wrestling <laughs> fans out there it's it's hard not to feel for him like he you know when you hear about his past with metallica and then he was hazed terribly he was never really appreciated um he you know he has some funny lines where he's like I don't want to have kids. Music's my baby. So he he wanted he wanted to do more musically, and he was he was uh, he was working with a band called Echo Brain. Yes, I are, bought the CD. Did you? Oh, I bought the like, album. Like <laughs> literally, if you went to Deals, Deals style Fungus Among Us era Incubus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that the the scene where they go to the Echo Brain show. Okay, well, hang on, I hang just on, need, hang on. and Lars is like. Jason's the future man. 
I was like, what? Metallica's the past, Jason's the future. It's like, what are you talking about? Okay, so yeah, basically the, the crux of this was he wanted to have a side project. And yes. And Hetfield said no. No, so Hetfield has always been, um, there is only Metallica, we are one family, there is no going outside this. Um, Hetfield is really the dictator of this band. Uh, it shows early on in his treatment of James Hetfield, uh, the fact that he will only... You know, only he can write the lyrics, only for him and Lars um, can write the music. Um, no, no business is done, even before um, before the movie was made, when they'd, when Berlinger and Sanofsky went to first meet Metallica to talk about actually doing this. They met them and Hetfield was late and they tried to kind of like talk a little bit. And Kirk was like, no, 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 we can't talk business until James gets here. Like he, he rules with an iron throne, with an iron fist, sorry. On an iron throne. I mean, <laughs> like... I think uh, Jason who says rationale, you know, about being excluded from the side project, and it's reasonable enough. I mean, and also he was very much like, why the fuck are we bringing in a therapist? He's like, we're like the biggest band in the world. It's lame and weak. That's the way he says it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's fucking lame and weak. Yeah. And he also, extremely questionable facial hair aside, I think he's got a point. Not like I'm not anti-therapy. I'm very pro-therapy. But like his whole rationale is, he's like, "Why are we reverting?" He's like, "We are a strong unit, aren't we?" And also, I just want to go over here and make this thing that won't fit into Metallica. It's not going to affect the band. Just let me do it. You've done like the South Park thing. Yeah, like, you've been on Corrosion and Conformity Records, and yeah, it seemed like a bit of a. It seemed again, it just seemed like he wasn't on the same level. And Hetfield, again, you mentioned earlier on, like you know, they kind of deal with the death of Cliff Burton. There is a little bit of self reflection here. Like James Hetfield does say, like he says, and I quote, "I didn't want him to enjoy it that more than Metallica. I didn't want him to leave." And he goes on to say, like, "I guess like all the things in my life, I strangle the life out of it because I don't want them to leave," which really fucking says a lot about James Hetfield. I think it was like quite sad. I think like like for all his goofiness and there's plenty of it and all his questionable ties to whatever and there's plenty of those too. He just comes across like a big fucking goofball who wasn't hugged enough or something, you know? Like I mean, I think the guy just has serious emotional issues. Yeah, he he I think he's he's admitted that he's had issues kind of growing up. He grew up in a Christian science home and didn't have a particularly great relationship with his family. I think he's kind of reconciled a bit with his dad, but for all intents and purposes, his way of solving arguments in the past was um, throwing punches, basically, and kind of deal with it later. Um, so one of the great things, I think, about this is seeing his growth. He, like, There's no doubt uh, that he comes out of this a better person. I think so. However, I mean, it takes some, it takes some stumbling blocks to get there, and Lars Ulrich does not help at times. So we're going to play some audio now of James... Lars and Kirk having a powwow about where they're at with the album in the early recording stages and Kirk does his very best to try and intervene I think it's fucking stock what, which part of that is unclear to you I think it sounds stock to my ears I mean you want me to write it down I think well, yeah, it, it feels it stock I I okay? so I no when you say you're telling me what to play right now you're telling me you should play with what Kirk's doing and I'm telling you it's stock dude Fine. You know what, guys? Why don't we just go in there and just hammer it out, all right, instead of hammering on each other? So, yeah, James exits that one by um, storming out. Slamming the door. One of the best door slams ever committed to cinema. I mean, incredible. And if you take this narrative literally, apparently goes straight to rehab. <laughs> like, I think he actually did, yeah. Did he? He stormed yeah, out studio and went that, that was pretty much... He went. He was done. They never recorded in the Presidio again. No, they left the military base, and then... 
You're away for eight, nine months. Quite some time, yeah. And I guess to fill the time before James comes back, we get, and I'm wary about doubling up on audio drops here, but we've no choice because some supporting players get introduced to this. First of all, we go hiking in the mountains with Lars and Lars's travelling companion, his dad. How would you describe this man? Um, he is, I think the word bohemian, if you looked it up in a, a dictionary, you would see a picture of Thorben Ulrich. He was a professional tennis player played Wimbledon, did the, did the circuit for a while. He's also a culture writer, uh, a documentarian in his own right, a, uh, what else does he do? He's a clarinet player in jazz bands. He's basically a man of many talents. Um, one of the funny moments, actually, just to, 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 to illustrate about, about Torben is um, when Lars Ulrich brought the, the two directors in, they were kind of like, showing him bits and bobs and what they were think that they were going to do and he's like oh, I've got something to show you and he showed them a very strange non-narrative film that his dad had made <laughs> he is incredible he's got a very long gorgeous grey beard he looks like he's about to train Lars uh, to defeat someone in like martial arts yeah he carries like a really like large stick around that he just like <laughs> does stretches with he is absolutely incredible but um, he's key for Lars because Lars clearly idolises him and also kind of fears him a little bit and also he's his barometer for is this good or not is this stock and he if his dad is like it's stock or as his dad would say delete it to something <laughs> yeah let's uh, let's like again he's barely in the film but he leaves an impression so this is Lars and his dad having a chat about where Lars is at in the creative process I would say you know if if, if you said if you were our advisor, what would you say? Then I would say, delete that. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I don't know for you guys. For for me, that doesn't cut it, you know. But um, I mean, it's interesting, you know. Now, yeah. the, I mean, other than the people involved here, yeah. the only other people who've heard in this music is Cliff Bernstein. Yeah. Cliff Bernstein heard that he thought that should open the record. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that could well be, but I, I I'm pretty sure that that I really that I really I I really don't think so. <laughs> you know. So there you go. I think it's interesting because like Lars goes from being crestfallen to kind of having a bit of a laugh with him in the end, and also he was right. It did sound like someone screaming into a fucking echo chamber. Do you know uh, how that piece of music came about? Do I want to know? So. I think it's fair to say that um, Kirk Hammond is right when he says that they were chasing trends and the fact that they pulled solos out, um, you know, dated it to that time. You know, there's a very new metal feel to it. But that kind of droney soundscape came off the back of all the lads in Metallica going to see Sigur in, I think it was, I'm not sure where they would have played in LA at that time. And they were like so blown away by it. They were just like, we're having some of that in the studio. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and rightly so. Um, his dad just shut it down immediately. Get rid of it. That's amazing. I mean, we've all been inspired when we've seen Cigarettes live, but again, stay in your lane. I wouldn't yeah. go do that. No, I mean, so the film then pivots to a pivotal moment in Metallica history. Dave Mustaine was a member back in the day, and he was thrown out. He was too hardcore for Metallica. He was. Yeah, he. I think it's it's actually interesting because he seems to be the same level or seem to have the same alcohol problem that James had, but it was noticed earlier and he just got turfed out. 
um, he woke up with I think James and Lars like standing over him and they were basically just like you're gone yeah they were like go to the fucking bus station it's over and then he went on to form Megadeth a band that I've never listened to nor I uh, why would you <laughs> he however is under the delusion that they are the second biggest metal band in the world they were very successful. Like they, I think they say that they sold 15 million records worldwide, which is nothing. Like they, They're part of the big, what is called, I suppose, the big four, big four metal with yeah. Anthrax and... Um, Slayer. Slayer, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's a sense of... Uh, Dave Mustaine shows up in this film for one very memorable scene. Could have realistically won Best Supporting Actor under the Academy Rules, I think. Um, but I guess he was beaten out by Nicole Kidman for the hours. And so essentially, meets up with Lars in a hotel room. And I trust Phil Tell is there as well. Someone else is in the room. And it's basically a come to Jesus meeting to discuss what was not discussed on that fateful day. And Dave Mustaine is a sad man who has been carrying this with him for his whole life. Uh, he mentions how he says stuff like, you know, do you know what I went through? And Lars is like, I have an understanding of what we did. And that you." And he goes, no, no. Do you know what I went through? And he goes, do you know what it's like when you're walking down the street and some guy throws up the devil horns at you and goes, Metallica, these fucking shitheads. And I'm like, that guy's a legend. Who did that? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, that doesn't happen. What are you talking about? It is remarkable, like, how he does seem genuinely still damaged by it, though. He really is. He's like, wounded. Like, really, he's really, so really damaged. Like, like the, the the sadness in his voice when he's just like, I miss my little Danish friend. Who I used to smoke hash with. Yeah. yeah. He's like, we used to dig a hole in the ground and smoke hash. <laughs> Um, it's a remarkable scene. Um, Mustaine isn't very happy about it. The scene, yeah. Um, they they went back to him afterwards because they were like, "Oh, we need maybe a bit of Megadeth music for here." Um, <laughs> they apparently filmed this two days after nine eleven. So, they, I so at the, at this point, I'm going to say I, I've read the guts of <laughs> um, Joe Berlinger's book about the making of this. And Hi, why don't you explain this on your like literally when I met you earlier on, you were I was reading it in the pub off a Kindle. You bought this. Well, I mean, I don't think there's any bookshop in Dublin that might be carrying this. So what's it called? It's called This Monster Lives. So I didn't. I only found out about it because um, Joe Berlinger made a follow up to some kind of monster ten years on. Um, before True the Never was released. We'll get to that. Yeah, it's only 26 minutes long. There's not really a lot to it. It basically just rehashes some kind of monster. Um, but he does mention the book. And I was like, oh, I'll have a little look at it. How much was it? Um, it was I th- it was like £3.80. So do I expense you or Craig or Dahi? Who's the money man? Dahi. <laughs> not a problem. Um, so yeah, it, three two days after, after 9-11. But they, there was a... There's an incredible part, like, Joe Berlinger seems a bit of a hack. He seems to fancy himself a bit in this book. Like, he seems to think he's one of the great documentaries. Yeah, like, at one stage, he's just like, oh, I envisage myself being, like, Werner Herzog, where, like, I just go from fiction to documentary, and it's like, well, the fiction (laughs) part is definitely not happening. Seamlessly. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, yeah, 9-11 happened, and his family, like, lived in New York, and he was in San Francisco at the time. And he couldn't get in touch with... um, with his family, which, and he said they live moderately close to the World Trade Center, which would be an utterly terrifying. This is Dave Mustaine. Uh, no, sorry, this is Joe Berlinger. Oh, sorry, back to sorry. him. My apologies. Um, so his, he's like, I can't get through to them, so I guess I'll just go to uh, where was the Ritz Carlton, and go like, <laughs> chat to Phil Tell, <laughs> work it out. Um, but anyway, so Mustaine says that he was in a situation where, I think everyone in America was like not in a great place post 9-11 I think that's fair to say and Mustaine feels that he was kind of like brought into a little bit of a trap 
Um, so basically, to, tried to get it taken out of the, that part, taken out of the movie. Judge for yourself, listener. Have you ever thought what, what I've been through? I think I've had an awareness of the pain I caused you. Um, That's not what I said. Okay. Um, Do you have any idea? Of what I put you through? What? No, no, no. What I went through. I mean, people hate me because of you. You know, I, I walk down the street and I hear some piece of shit say, Metallica at me, and they do that to taunt me. I mean, when I would hear Metallica on the radio, I would be like, God, I have to turn this off because I just keep thinking, I fucked up. Yeah, I mean, I never really was on his on, on his corner. I thought he was delusional. And I'm like, I guess on an empathy level, I mean, clearly something did occur that changed his life. And, you know, he formed the second biggest metal band of all time. Doesn't seem like that bad of a shakeup. Yeah, like he went on to have success. Like I could understand if, you know, if you feel like you just missed the, you know, you missed the lottery ticket by by like one number or you're in a syndicate, <laughs> you're in a syndicate and you, you, you left and then you, you didn't get it. But yeah, he went on to have like massive, massive amounts of success. But he knows that he's been waiting for that day and it wasn't fully complete because James Heffield there wasn't was there. There was someone else not there. there someone not in the room. That someone was still not in the room as the band continued to try and struggle and survive. And that's when Echo Brain come back into focus. They're playing a gig in some club and Lars, Kirk and Bob go along for a big night out. Lars is fucking terrified, as you say, thinking that Echo Brain and Jason Newsett is the future and Metallica's the past, which is, felt very stagey to me. Yeah, it felt incredibly stagey. Felt like, like he was performing for the cameras there. I, yeah, and that, that's the one time I felt like he kind of genuinely did. Like, I feel that they were pretty authentic about this and um, because they had um, a financial say in it, um, they kind of got shown elements of the movie, which you wouldn't normally do to the, the subjects of your documentary. Um, and he kind of was like, oh, no, I think you need to hit me harder there a little bit. Like, I, you know, where was that bit where I was being a dickhead? Um, you know, which is, you know, pretty pretty candid for him to do um for the good of the film but that that one point yeah it was like you were watching the same thing we were watching weren't you also like they go backstage and they meet the two members of the band but jason's gone home which also feels staged even though why would jason newstead be playing for the camera but he's not there he's bailed and they're really upset about this then we get a bob rock comedy segment in his terrible leather jacket where he's dangling his car keys waiting to take his adult children home <laughs> and he's spotting random crew members who also work in the studio and he's like there's steve hey steve and it's like what is this yeah like all, all the guys who were working in the the presidio essentially out of a job and then just jason just swooped in and took them all it doesn't make it doesn't sense doesn't make a lot so of sense. also okay before we get to the next part of the movie i guess act two of ten um Echo Brain, yeah. Uh, you're, do, do you want to have a go for me? I, I bought this album on a whim. Tell, tell me about Echo Brain. <laughs> my, my only uh, exposure to Echo Brain is the, what, 40 seconds of them in this, and it well, doesn't seem great. I tell you what, let's take a listen to Echo Brain. The only time I'm ever going to say that. It's a colder There you go. 
that's a song that I thought was good when I was uh, how old, nineteen or whatever it was. You know, I thought it was it, it was some good good blues rock and roll. Uh, I think I liked two songs on that album. I bought it. it had a cardboard case, if I recall correctly. This was back in the day, man, when like my CD collection would still exist. It's it's still in Drawdale. Like if I went back there, it'd still be there. This was when I'd read Kerrang magazine. And I would take them at their word and I'd go down to the local record store and you get to listen to like 30 seconds of a song and then you get to part with £21 or whatever the fuck it was. And I did that. I bought that. I bought like Otep. I bought Puddle of Mud. Hell is for Heroes. Amen. Amen were fucking good, by the way. I had, yeah, Amen. The We Have Come For Your Parents. That's the Ross Robinson producer. Fantastic yeah. album. Not on Spotify, by the way. What the fuck? I know they were like independent, but like, come on. That's a belter of an album. I bought a lot of shite. I bought like Brad, the Pearl Jam spin-off band that no one listens to. Oh, God. I know, man. I'm telling you. One of these days. One of these days. So, okay, this is a good time to ask. Uh, is this an especially well-made documentary? Um, I don't think so. I think, um, I think Berlinger... Definitely got really compromised in in lots of ways. Um, one having therapy with Phil Dell doesn't really seem like the thing. Like with, with documentary films, um, the camera is supposed to be kind of like the window for the audience to look at something, but it's also supposed supposed to be a wall between the the filmmaker and the subjects. And I kind of feel like he got too chummy to them, and he'd leave things in, not leave take other things out. Um. yeah and like it's just it's not that well put together it's not particularly edited very well and like you know I imagine this is an incredibly hard film to edit because they shot like 6200 hours you know they were filming for so many days they were shooting on video so like there, there was no time where they were like oh you know we should probably film now so like everything was filmed Um. so to get through it was to be difficult but it's it's like if it wasn't so fascinating of just what was happening with these men um, I don't think it's particularly well put together. Yeah, it's very basic. It's not attractive to look at, but again, it moves at a clip and you're never bored. They move to a new studio. James is back. The studio's called HQ. They're working from noon to four every day. That's James's schedule. Lars instantly pulls co- pours cold water on this as Bob tries to be diplomatic and Kirk is also in the room. On day 378, they make frantic. <laughs> Yeah, frantic. The opening track of Saint Anger. I saw them on tour. I saw them open up live in Marley Park. I think it was with that. Song. It was uh, the RDS. It was. They also played Marley Park though at some point. They played Marley. They played two years in a row in the RDS. Yeah, I was a, one year was with Slipknot. That's the one I missed. One year was with Lincoln Park. I was there for that. Yeah, I went to both. Uh, the Darkness were also on the. Yes, they were. Board, I believe. And uh, yeah, so frantic. Bit of a tune. Um, <laughs> it's definitely a riff. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely like, you know, one thing you can't deny, there's a lot of riffs that are very nice on this album, but... Yeah, I mean, like, at this point in the film, Lars begins to look like a Pixar director. Like, he's wearing oversized Hawaiian shirts and has long brown mullet hair. I I wanted to to touch on that. That scene, he, everyone is wearing, it's like they, (laughs) it's, it's like Phil came in one day and he's like, guys, I know spirits have been a little bit low, but... Hear me out. He's shopping. like Hawaiian shirt Friday. It's just like casual Friday. <laughs> it's like get everyone, you know, the joy to view for we were back in it. Yeah. Uh James's first vocal attempts on this song are terrible. At this point when I watched the documentary, this is when my housemate walked in. And as I noted on Twitter, I feel like hardcore porn would have been easier to explain. <laughs> I didn't know what to say. It's for work. Yeah, I see these notes, I'm taking notes. Um they get into some more scraps. 
and Lars has a real go at Hetfield. Let's take a listen to that. I don't understand who you are. I don't understand the program. I don't understand all this stuff, okay? I realize now that I barely knew you before. And all these rules and all this shit, man. This is a fucking rock and roll band. I don't want fucking rules. I understand that you need to leave at four. I respect it. But don't tell me I can't sit and listen to something with Bob at 4.15 if I want to. The fuck is that? You know, I, I, I don't want to end up like Jason, okay? I don't want to be pushed away. I don't want it to happen twice. Let's do it and let's fucking do it full on or let's not do it at all. Fuck. See? Fuck. Fuck! I realize now that I barely knew you before. Now that's cutting. Lars really goes for the fucking jugular when he wants to, doesn't he? Yeah. I Do you think that all of this was exacerbated by Phil? Like, the, the way that they, they, they talk to each other. Like, they, they say that he he saved the band for, like, I kind of feel like he needles them in ways to say things. I Like, I, I don't think they, I don't think they mean a lot of what they say sometimes. But I kind of feel like he pushes them in the direction to say it. I was surprised that Hetfield didn't just lurch over the table and fucking crack Lars's neck. So Hetfield actually said, if anyone else had done that, they're getting punched. Especially when he walks right up to him and says, fuck, into right his face. Right in his face, yeah. Again, I'm like, how are you just taking this? Yeah. Um, Lars but- strutting around like a dot-com billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> like, he looks like one. It's so weird. Uh, we get a fan jam session where, like, they just play with fans for oh, a while. Oh, they, they intercut. Again, like, it's kind of weird. Like, they this big kind of explosive moment where Lars is blowing up and they just, like, they intercut the whole thing with, like, fan appreciation day. It's so it's strange. Like, it doesn't really say a lot like I think what they're trying to do is like look at the the face that they're putting on for for the public but it's like they didn't have to put that face on for the public they they actively had that day yeah you know it's not like they were going out it's not like they were on the road on tour uh, they were sniping at each other uh, you know backstage and then they were like looking like a band on stage like they're in the studio the only people that would have known about this were the people that were there and all the camera crew, obviously. Yeah, you get a lot of tensions within the band. At this point, they write the unnamed feeling, which I think is a bit of a tune. Uh, Lars behaving like a brat section. They get an entire montage of Lars just being a horrible prick, shooting down everyone's ideas, sulking a lot. Uh, you get uncomfortable pornographic close-ups of him playing the drums. Uh, and then we get to the section where they make the decision, no more solos. And Kirk, to his credit, stands up for himself, but not enough. Yeah. He calls it out as bullshit. He's entirely right. Um, this album is incredibly dated. Um, and Kirk was 100% right. And I think what what makes the songs actually quite bad is that they, they're still structured like Metallica songs where you're like, they're building to a solo. There's just no solo. And then it just goes back into, you know, the third third verse of like a pretty, to borrow a term, stock <laughs> riff. Um can I ask you a question? What do you think the two biggest musical, or what do you think the biggest musical influences on this album are? Obviously, some, there's some, like, it's around the time of new metal. They they actively say that they didn't like a lot of new metal, but it's it's there. The drop drop C, drop C tuning is, like, indicative of the time. But what, what do you think? What, what do you hear 
on this album. Are you getting this from you, or did they state that they They didn't have... state it. Just like, I have two that really stick out to me. Mm, um, okay. Like, are they new metal bands? Uh, one is, one's not. Deftones? No. Slipknot? No. Mm, okay. Uh, this could go on for a long time. Okay. Uh, I think new metal system of a down. Like, the riffs. Yeah, that, When you yeah, take, like, yeah. something like Sweet Amber, uh, Sweet Amber like, the... Sweet Amber. <laughs> Fuck How me. How sweet are you? Um, <laughs> Using what I want to get what you want. Use <laughs> I think I think that's a big vibe, and I think it's no surprise that when they went to record their next album that they ended up uh, working with Rick Rubin, who produced the two System of a Down albums. The other album um, that just kind of came to me, this is, like, very bluesy metal. Um, I don't know if you listen to a lot of Down, uh, Phil and Selmo's and... Uh, Pepper Keenan. Someone's rocking a down t-shirt at one stage in the studio. That wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, so like very like bluesy metal and it kind of feels like this weird amalgam of the two to me but also still trying to make a metallic album but then cutting out the solos. <laughs> <laughs> Some kind of monster. Uh, so yeah, there's talk of, you know, someone again feels, feels made up for the movie. Someone's like, I've heard from a little bird that Jason might want back in. At which point, therapist Phil... Um, after Bob Rock says no because he wants to be the bass player and is playing bass in this album Phil briefly turns into a psychic medium in which he says the message I'm getting from Jason is you guys need to you guys need to fly together you need to move on uh, and he actually says the words I've got to capitalise on this which I thought was amazing because I was like you're like panicking in the moment being like I have to make my money here now dude's a fucking fraud they consider cutting the cord with Phil but they can't do it because they end, end up rowing and need him back in the thing. James describes him as an angel sent to help him, but there will be a time to move on. Yeah, um, they, they actually, the day that, uh, that they talked about that, um, they talk about it in the book, Didi Ramon died and famously left the Ramones, uh, also a bass player. Um, Metallica had been doing Ramones covers during the recording of St. Anger, um, when they first went in and when they first got back, I think they were doing, uh, it was like a tribute album. So this was the, this was the, actually the day that they had the breakthrough with Cliff, with Cliff dying. It's like, this happened and then there was talk about Jason coming back and they were kind of opening, open to like maybe having a conversation with him. But Kirk was just like, no, he's gone. Kirk, lovely <laughs> Kirk. <laughs> Knives out. I mean, yeah, Lars, there's like a deleted clip of him freaking out, being like, he left the fucking band, like, and he's not happy. And uh, it's funny as well that, like, um, what Jason wanted from the band is, ex- is essentially what they tried to do with the record, where it was just like, this is more uh, a collective rather than, like, a two-man show. Yeah, he was the sacrificial lamb in a way. We talk about Napster, in which Lars Ulrich goes to a Senate hearing and reads out the usernames and real names, people who use Napster to download his music. We get a weird moment, very much like fans burning the football shirt when Raheem Sterling joins Man City, of fans staging a protest outside, stamping on their Metallica CDs. One man in particular is very upset and says he will never support Metallica ever again. Here's my question to you. Did you have Napster? Of course I had Napster. So did I. I downloaded lots of stuff on Napster back in the day. It took me approximately three days to download Nookie by Limp Bizkit. Yeah, do you, do you remember it had the, like, God, the, the the relationship we had with music when we were younger where you'd be downloading something on Napster and it would be like 20% downloaded, but you could preview the 20%. Mm-hmm. I remember doing that with like PODs Alive. And then the phone would ring and ruin the whole thing. Yeah. Different world, guys, if you didn't if you didn't grow up in it. You didn't live it. So at the time, I would have been, yeah, fuck Lars. But now I'm like, 
Yeah, he had a point. He had a point. <laughs> he totally had a point. And like, um, you know, maybe not the per- best person to make it because, you know, he has lots of money, but he also has a platform. And and he basically was like, don't steal my music, please. Yeah, which I think is a reasonable thing to say. It is. Um, it's quite noticeable as well that like, you know, album sales, like when, when, you, when you said how many records of Metallica sold, they'd sold 190 million up until this record. And since then... What, 18 years? They sold 30. Yeah. You know, they've released three, three more albums. Three more albums. Yeah. But, and they still have the back catalogue that still might sell, but it just shows you, like, he had a point. He had a point. Cliff Bernstein, the manager, comes in to have a listen to what has been recorded so far. He's really into the first four tracks, but not the rest of it, by the looks of things. He's kind of like, eh, you're kind of watering it down here and there, aren't you? Did I ever tell you Cliff Bernstein is a very, very smart man? <laughs> <laughs> James fights for temptation but Lars doesn't. But they find common ground together and they have this moment where they're like, wow, that was the first time we've ever really listened to each other and actually compromised on something. Um, yeah, no, it is It is a good moment because um, they they do have a really interesting relationship. They, like, they've been around for so long and I guess like they've seen themselves as the steward, stewards of this band. Um, but they, they do claim like to have never really like known each other and like they, they are very different people. I think that's like one of the really interesting things about Metallica is like, Lars Ulrich moved to play tennis from Denmark. Like, you know, not as English, not his first language. Comes from a very cultured background, as you can see by his dad. Well, James Heffield, for all intents and purposes, like very, very blue collar. He likes drinking beer. He, you know, in the Playboy interview, like Lars kind of is just like, yeah, he's kind of like a bit of a knucklehead. He's homophobic. Well, Lars would be very, very progressive. So seeing the two of them actually like come together is quite nice. Speaking of progression, Lars sells his uh, art collection, which more on Dave over here. When I first saw this, I thought he painted them. <laughs> he just bought a bunch of art that he sells. And it's presented in this really bizarre fashion where it's like opulent rich man is selling a lot of paintings and his personal assistant is like, for Lars, this is the end of one chapter and the beginning of another one. And he's like, oh, it's going to be really hard letting these letting these bad boys go. So he sells them at like fucking Sotheby's or something. One painting out of many, one painting alone goes for $5 million. Yeah. Lars has got an eye for art. There's a, there's a cracking line in the book actually where he's talking about his love for art. And I'm going to have to paraphrase it because I didn't take it down properly. But he was like... <laughs> You know, hanging out with Kid Rock is pretty cool, <laughs> but uh, staring at a, a du buffet with a gin and tonic is pretty all right too. <laughs> it's like, oh God. It's such a strange scene because any sympathy you've been gaining is instantly evaporated as you see this man like drop a fucking champagne glass in a gallery and leave as some poor worker cleans it up instead as a guitar riff crashes in. <laughs> so again, it's, the documentary is strange. On day 620, Phil, scrambling to keep his job, suggests meditation and clashes with Bob. He then pins up a bunch of pages around the studio, referencing, quote-unquote, the zone. Nobody seems convinced. $40,000 a month. Yeah, this man is stealing a living. So like two years, he paid, like pulled in like half a million, half a million dollars for this. I just, I, I, again, like, I don't know what they got from him. Really yeah. don't. James knows that he's afraid that he's under the impression that he's in the band. Now, at this point, we pivot to, we need a new bass player. We do. We get a big montage of people trying out. They hold tryouts and they recruit big names. Danny Loner from Nine Inch Nails. Eric Avery, who played with Alanis Morissette. Scott Reeder from Caius. 
Twiggy Ramirez of Marilyn Manson fame, Pepper Keenan of Corrosion and Conformity, Rob Trujillo of Ozzy Osbourne and Suicidal Tendencies fame. You're going to have to. It's Trujillo. Is it Trujillo? Yes. Okay, Rob Trujillo. I apologize. Do you know what his full name is, and by the way? Chris Wise from The Cult. Go on. Can I give you Rob Trujillo's full name? Please do. You're going to think that I'm doing a bit here, but this is on Wikipedia, and I've looked at a few other places, and this is genuinely his name. His name is Roberto Augustin Miguel Santiago Samuel Perez de la Santa Concepcion Trujillo Veracruz Batista. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. It's absolutely incredible. I love that. Yeah. That is brilliant. He's a, he's a very lovable man, despite the fact that he's rocking jeans and shoes. Big oh, oversized yeah. jeans, big shiny black shoes. He looks like he's on his way to coppers. <laughs> <laughs> he impresses the lads during the tryout by playing battery and with his crab walk, a signature move. Ultimately, he wins. They hire him and they award him $1 million. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? I think that like it, that was definitely to do with their commitment issues is that they felt, I think, that by saying, here is $1 million, you are actually a member of Metallica as opposed to, I, you know, the way they treated, they, like, that's the lesson learned, the way they treated Newstead before. Throw money at it. Throw money at the problem. He's overwhelmed and seems like a very nice man. He does. And Bob Rock looks conflicted. Well, as, <laughs> is it James says, well, now we got to fire Bob. Mm-hmm. And Bob's gone. So, a part of what prompted this, the catalyst, I suppose, for them getting the new bass player was coming to the end of the album process, album's coming out at a certain amount of time, we're going to do a bunch of things. And one thing that they did was a television show called MTV Icon, and you watched it for I, this. I did. Did you watch it at the time? At the time, I'm not ashamed to say, I was in a, I was in a mental hospital. Okay. And I saw it there. That's my body memory of MTV Icon. Oh, was wow. that, that was on that and like Rock Your Body by Justin Timberlake. I yeah, seen yeah. that like on the thing at the time. I think Girls Let It a couple of singles out. Like that's kind of etched into my memory forever. But I remember lying on my bed in, in that place, which was not a very nice place to be, uh, and watching MTV Icon. It's <laughs> yeah, like, I what am I? Avril Lavigne doing Fuel. What is happening? Snoop Dogg doing Sad But True, which I don't think James appreciated. So MTV Icon sounds like, you know, they've given Icon, or given Metallica Icon status. There's talk of you know, does Jason be a part of this? And someone says, as far as I'm concerned, he lost his icon stats when he left Metallica. And they have a big laugh about that on speakerphone. So this is essentially a big celebration of the band, isn't it? Like, I mean... Yeah, I mean, like, in a way, it is kind of... Like, as as, as well as completing the album, this is kind of like the triumph of everything that they've gone through. This is their, their happy ending, their recognition by their peers putting out a new album new bass player everything's good in Metallica world yeah and the whole point is that they trot out a bunch of celebrities to do this but they didn't get the sexiest lineup of all time did they um, some of Linkin Park Kelly Osbourne Avril Lavigne um, Travis Barker was he there was he he introduced someone with Chester Bennington um, do, you, do you remember all the acts who played no please tell me Okay, I'll tell you watched you. the whole thing did you I watched I watched all the the covers that you really went they, deep they, for this they podcast. did and, and I respect that a lot. I watched Metallica because it was the first time that they played a song from Sinanga. They played Frantic at the end of it because I remember at the time that's I recorded it and I like watched it back loads of times because I was this was this was deep when I was like full Metallica are my favorite band in the world. Um, so they they the people who did covers so you had some forty one come out at the start and do a medley. Uh, and then you had Avril Lavigne doing Fuel, Snoop Dogg doing Sabbath True, Stained doing Nothing Else Matters. My boys. Corn uh, doing like an abridged version of One. My other boys. And Limp Bizkit doing 
Welcome home, sanitarium. In my main voice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's actually kind of interesting because they, considering that, you know, Lars and James had kind of been like, yeah, Olympus are kind of bullshit. Um, Korn, I guess, are okay. Like, Kirk had been like, yeah, New Metal's kind of garbage. He trashed Godsmack. Sully Erna was there doing an intro as well. Go for a deep cut. <laughs> Do you... Stand <laughs> Do you remember who introed Metallica? No. Sean fucking Penn. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, they got the Sean Penn stamp. That hasn't aged well. <laughs> Bradley Cooper, Metallica, El Chapo. Wow. <laughs> Sean Penn stamp. And was he like one of our finest metal bands ever? Yeah, we, I have no idea why he did it. Oh, there was, there was also a... Oh, I should have written that. There was a comedian who used to be on SNL, not a very funny person, doing like jokes about Metallica. So he was just basically like, and then Jason, uh, sorry, and then uh, James Hetfield's just like, yeah, <laughs> and then he tries to like do a Lars uh, impression. Christ, pretty, the roast of Metallica. Yeah, I mean, it sounds bad. it sounds like a who's who. It sounds like you know the stars. Uh, the sky was dark for all the stars were out. Uh, essentially, um, it goes off well. There's a moment where they kind of come through the crowd and they're slapping hands at the Ultimate Warrior, and Rob Trujillo is like, "Hello, I'm also here." Yeah. I haven't really done anything with them yet. <laughs> I have got a million dollars to do this. <laughs> I've got big shoes on and a massive pair of jeans. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was what it was. Uh, at this point, we get a look at the the whiteboards and the possible album titles. Oh, are you so... They, I've, I've Frantic re- was in the in the running, wasn't it? It was. Yes. It was between Frantic and St. Anger in the end, and Lars wanted, Lars wanted Frantic. Um, so essentially, he was like he thought it was great, but everyone was also like, "Nah, it sounds like we're unsure of ourselves." Here are some possible album titles: Butchered, Surfing the Zeitgeist. Surfing this was that uh, Kirk Hammett who celebrates his two-year anniversary of surfing some <laughs> stage in the film. Unbridled, Speed Avenue, Speed Avenue. <laughs> That's definitely Hetfield. <laughs> we're already dead. We're just haunting together. That sounds like an emo album. Feels so much better, dot, 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 not to think. <laughs> I wrote all these down, man. I wrote They're all big these fans down. of a, a, a dot, dot, dot. That's like two records, have it. <laughs> Unresolve. Every gift has its price, and there's a dollar sign in that one. Oh, that's new metal, totally. If you're broke, you are never fixed. Yeah. The, the unclearness is very clear. I mean, that's as like as wise a word as my lifestyle determines my death style, which I think is like almost like the uh, proto YOLO like <laughs> for a generation. I am my own friend, and then we get to Saint Anger. Uh, James reflects on Saint Anger and says, "Strong, iconic, strong." I kind of feel they should have called the album some kind of monster, and should have called the documentary madly in anger with you <laughs> on day 701 they shoot the video for the title tracks in anger in San Quentin prison did you know this was the uh, pay-per-view theme for SummerSlam 2003 I did they they don't license their uh, songs to movies a lot but when Vince McMahon comes calling <laughs> what do you need WWE's favourite band apart from Limbiscuit so yes um, they shoot the video with inmates at San Quentin most of whom ha- or happen to be Metallica fans. And you get a weird moment where James comes very close to doing a Krusty the Clown uh, when he's chatting to the inmates and ultimately bonds with them. Let's have a quick listen. It's a lot of misspent anger that has come out sideways for a lot of people, including yourselves. And if I hadn't had music in my life, it's quite possible I could be in here or not even in here be dead. And uh, I'd... Uh, I'd much rather be alive. 
So there you go. A man who could have been in there, but instead is not and is going home. <laughs> to have a, a bed made of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> to a family and a big mansion. <laughs> And all yeah. the pleasures that the outside world brings. It's a, it's a pretty, it is like that's a pretty funny scene. And like, again, um, James isn't the most eloquent man, but I think he's being pretty candid there. Oh, he definitely and like, is. He, and you know, you can see, you can see the good in it, but it's hard not to laugh at it. It's very funny. Uh, watching the video, <sighs> I actually didn't rewatch the video. I don't remember between very green, very of its time. Yeah, Slayer did a video in a prison many years later with Danny Trejo in it, and it's like one of the most violent videos ever. And it's just <laughs> disgusting. It's like lads <laughs> getting decapitated in a prison and like getting their eyes gouged out. And it's of course because it's fucking Slayer, man. Of course. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. So the film ultimately comes to a conclusion. The album is done. They're about to embark on their summer tour for the first in three years. Now, I was under the impression that they had booted Phil, but he's still there at the end. Yeah, he he cannot be got rid of. They need to foist him on someone else. They need to. He's like he's like the curse. You need to pass on. We get a triumphant going on the road finale, and you get them warming up for a gig with, of course, Ecstasy of Gold, which is flawless. Yeah. Oh, like it's such an incredible intro. It's incredible intro music. I think for me, if I was in a band and I was going to walk on stage for like you know that to build up the the hype, I would go with the heist music from Heat. Oh wow. It's so good, man. I was listening to it the other day when I was like walking to work and I was late and I was like, oh, fuck, I gotta pick up the pace here <laughs> and I banged on the ice <laughs> music. <laughs> which also isn't on Spotify, so I had to like YouTube it off my phone while holding my phone up and I was like giant uh, Val Kilmer face with long blonde hair and I'm like, I must look like a complete psychopath. But Just at least imagining I, you have an enormously heavy bag of money. <laughs> I had a heavy bag on me. I think I saw someone like in the YouTube comments though, like saying like this is the music that goes through my head whenever I'm cashing a check. <laughs> Which I really enjoyed. Uh, so the last thing we see in this film is we get another ident on the screen. It says that uh, Saint Anger debuted at number one in thirty countries, and like it's like let's leave it there, shall we? They don't present any of the backlash. And what like what, was there any backlash? Let's ask that question. I mean, I mean it, it did it did well financially, I guess, for them. But yeah, not a very well received album. That's kind of we've pointed out. There it's, are it is some positive critical notices at the time, though. I think the likes of Rolling Stone and Enemy. I think the shock of the new everyone was like, "This is great." Pitchfork gave it not point eight out of ten. Not point eight. And the album review itself was one of those Pitchfork album reviews where it's abstract and the guy's writing a mini novel instead of reviewing the album and tries to weave it in, and it's really proud of itself and terribly written. Um, but obviously, you know, the notoriety of it exists. And ultimately, I think very quickly, people realised this wasn't a great album. I bought it. I remember listening to this album a lot while playing Grand Theft Auto 3. I remember I got this album. Um, I think I just finished English Paper 2. My mother brought it home for me. I'm being like, God bless her, from work. Doing the leaving search. <laughs> being so incredibly disappointed the image of your mother purchasing St. Anger with its fucking enormous veiny red fist (laughs) the artwork is is horrific it's terrible it's not great Uh, I'm sure people got it tattooed hastily and regret that to this day Um, should the backlash have been presented Um, I don't think so because this is ultimately a celebration of a band that overcame yeah like in fairness like we have recently seen what happens. We talked in the last episode what happens when uh, the producers of the film are also the subjects, whether it be fictional or documentary. Um, but in this case, like it, it doesn't. It wouldn't feel right. It would feel like an addendum just to be like, oh yeah, the album was shit, and it kind of got a kick in. I think the 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 narrative, of the arc, is them getting through it all and actually getting a piece out, and the band not breaking up and. Like, 
James getting the help that he needed. Like, I mean, where he was, like, you don't want to get grim, but like you guys have been talking lately. We're like, we're losing a lot of musicians. Um, and, it, you know, James was on that road. It looked like, you know, you don't want to completely make assumptions, but he had a very, 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 very severe problem. He came out the other side of it. You know, that's a that's a good way to end the film. Like, it's a, it's a good note um, f- to be just like, nobody liked it. <laughs> would kind of seem... Yeah. Wouldn't work. It kind of spoke for itself. Um, I remember when they played Ireland, and at the end, the crowd was chanting for whiskey in the jar, and they couldn't play it because Rob Trujillo didn't know it, apparently. That was the <gasps> urban legend about that one. Rob. Then they came back and then they That's played That's what it. the money's for. <laughs> <laughs> That's where you're earning your, your seven figures. Uh, has your outlook on this film changed since you first watched it? Um, yeah, I guess like maybe not as much as yours would have had because the the times in between when I did see it uh, was a little bit shorter. But yeah, um, I think it's an incredible, incredible film. Like I, I would agree with you that it's like the best music documentary. Um, so much of rock music and to an extent metal, like when you think back, is about myth making. And I don't know if you've like ever read like biographies of like Led Zeppelin. It's like it's it's almost like they they believe in the myth of themselves as much as they believe in the myth of like, you know, they'll they'll deal into like the fantasy world in their lyrics. And this is just like, this smashes that myth in a way that is absolutely incredible. Like you have the biggest rock star in the world um, or one of the biggest rock stars in the world, James Hetfield, like going to his daughter's ballet lesson and like, it's just, it, they're laying themselves bare and like, I'm, I've, I don't really like Lars Ulrich a lot like he's he's a difficult guy to love but I have a lot of respect for how he kind of um, shepherded this movie and wanted it to be candid and wanted it to kind of be warts and all and wanted it to be different and even though they get their happy ending it's like it's not like a full on celebration it's not a Hagiography. It's like. not hagiography now, for sure. It isn't. Uh, I really like it. I, I recommended it to just about everybody. And I mean, ultimately, I find that this is a really good film to watch with people, particularly if they have no relationship to Metallica, because it does take on its own kind of weird life form. And people do have this kind of surreal reaction to it because it is genuinely odd. It's like Louis fucking Theroux was in the room or something, you know? And I think ultimately you come away from being like, that was fascinating, that was compelling, and I learned a lot, and I wished them well. But now, we're going to talk about general Metallica. Yeah. To wrap it up. What do you want to go with first? Uh, i tell you what, mate. Like, you, you, you've prepared this section. I only kind of glanced at it on the running order. Very succinctly presented running order. One page. I'm very impressed. Got to keep it neat. It's like a CV. Nobody reads the second page. This is all you, baby. Um, so we, we, we did Bohemian Rhapsody last time. Um, Bo Rap. Bo Raps. Is it Bo Rap or Bo Raps? I like raps. We'll go Bo Raps. Yeah, okay. Um, so, cast your Metallica biopic okay this is very difficult <sighs> so you can you can give me the current members of the band and previous members of the band I'm not going to ask you to cast the Rod. guy's name Rod Rod the guy who was before Cliff there was a guy before Cliff there was like a really yeah but when Mustaine was there uh, the first there was a very like early days I think his name was Rod something okay I, I'm gonna like try and I, I, obviously uh, we'll, we'll clean up any dead audio gaps yeah. of pauses that may occur so I'm gonna say for Lars Ulrich Peter Sarsgaard for Lars Ulrich Peter Sarsgaard okay good choice I think that works Did you like my choice do you want to trade them off yeah let's go one for um, one I, I respect that you've gone Scandinavian I wanted to also go you know, Scandinavian. I've gone for a European. I've gone Daniel Bruhl. 
for Lars Ulrich. Yeah. He can do it, but like... He can, yeah, he can he definitely do, do it. Yeah. Terrific in Rush, by the way, a film there yeah. we should check out. Like a workman like Ron Howard movie. A great actor. Really I also good. wanted... Yeah, I, I'm conscious of like height because Lars is kind of small. Yeah. He's not, you know, very physically built. That's fair, yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, I think I think Brule is the better choice th- than mine. Okay, I'm going to go with uh, the obvious James Heffield. It's got to be Chris Hemsworth. Interesting. Um... <laughs> I have Hemsworth for someone else. I think Chris Hemsworth's too good looking to play James Hetfield. You think he's Jason Newstead? No, uh, Cliff Burton. Oh, okay. yeah, actually, yeah, that's really good. Yeah. Uh, so who? Okay, so I'm I'm gonna stick with him as. <sighs> I oh, that, that, he's perfect for Cliff Burton. Yeah. Holy shit! Okay, yeah, I'll pivot to that. So I yeah, I'll agree with you. We'll, we'll siphon that in together because we're gonna cast this now. So we're going Daniel Brule. As Lars. Yeah. Chris Hemsworth as uh as Hetfield. Or sorry, uh, as, as, as as Burton. <laughs> my apologies. My my James. Go on. Um so I think one of the things I wanted people who are like about forty, basically the same age that the lads were when they were making this album. Because then you can I think I know you, who you're you can say. go them I know, up I know and you can go them down. I know who you're gonna say. say Michael Shannon. No. I'm going Michael Shannon. Oh you're going Shannon. Yeah. Shannon probably has the physicality. Um I'm going for someone who was recently um, come back into our lives in a role where he has played multiple ages. We're going to have to do a little bit of camera trickery, but I'm going Stephen Dorff. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, that's not bad. You've 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 researched this well. I think I'm doing okay for being on the fly here. Yeah, because you literally have a laptop in front of you. Yeah, uh, I don't have photos of them all. I I did the research in advance. Like you did with your notes. Yeah, I did, yeah. I okay, did. so can we get a Kirk Hammett? That's a really tough one. It is a tough one. Um, it's also potentially problematic territory. It is, and I was thinking that when you said it. <laughs> like, I was like, fuck, like, what is the safe answer here? So for the, for the record, Kirk Hammett is mother is of from the Philippines and then he has a kind of a German-Irish background, uh, possibly English, Scottish on his father's side. So the obvious answer is Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, Jason Momoa. Jason Momoa. Interesting. I've gone for someone who has been in a movie before, playing an instrument. I've gone for Oscar Isaac. As Kirk Hammett. Yeah, I want to see him with the curly the curly hair. I could see it. Let it flow. I could see it. Okay, I, I think that's fairly well cast. What about Jason Newstead? Um, I had difficulty with Newstead. Can we, can we do Rob Trujillo? Yes. This one's easy. I'm going to be disappointed if Jason you... Momoa. <laughs> no. Um, no. Rob Trujillo. Uh, oh, uh, uh, no, like, hang on, no, he's too old. Um, give me yours. Roman Reigns. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah, it's Roman Reigns. So, like, th- think, 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 think his cast already. We've got someone from Star Wars, a wrestler, <laughs> so, uh, like, an Avenger... <laughs> Like this is Buck, and then and then Stephen Dorf. <laughs> hey, the Dorf sons or whatever yeah. it's called is on. Okay, so uh, Jason Newstead, you said you struggled with that one, did you? Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't really think of anyone. Nobody for Jason Newstead. He kind of doesn't really look like anyone. I guess he could. In that theory, doesn't have to be like a complete physical resemblance. Like, yeah. There's often times when someone is cast, that you're like, eh, I don't know. I briefly thought of James Franco, but then my my movie was already too problematic by yeah. casting someone, <laughs> and it would cause me to not watch the film. I'm going to go for. Billy Crudup. We can take Crudup, yeah. Thanks. And then Mustaine. Oh, God. So Chris, wh- Chris Jericho. <laughs> another wrestler. But Mustaine, like, that's that's like ginger red hair. So when I when I was looking at Mustaine, I was, first thing I was Donald like... Donald Gleason. Yeah, I have him. <laughs> My first thought was like, 
can Isabel Hubert play this role? She can do anything. Or does she have a son? Can we get Tilda Swinton into this movie? I mean, can obviously. she be can she be Bob Rock? She, oh well, Phil, maybe. <laughs> okay. So so we, we were agreed on uh Donald Gleason as Dave Mustaine, uh, Chris Hemsworth as Cliff Burton. Who do we have for Newstead then? Uh no we oh fuck, do we do we not pick one? I said James Franco, but I don't really feel too no, good. No, that about doesn't it. work at all. We'll come back to Newstead. Uh Roman Reigns playing the role of Rob Trujillo. Yeah. Daniel Brewer playing Lars Ulrich. Yeah. Um the dwarf is is he getting the role? I'll give him the role, yeah. but yeah, there's going to have to be some trickery. Uh, and yeah, who are we going for, Hammett? You wanted Momoa? I think so. But He's probably going to have to go on like the the, the Christian Bale machinist <laughs> diet. Christian Bale as um, oh, Sam Rockwell as Jason Sam- Newstead. Boom. Beautiful. It's done. All Directed right. by uh, Ron Howard. <laughs> <laughs> what else you got? Um, just a simple one. Metallic albums. Talk to me. Top five. Master Puppets. One. Sin Anger. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Master of Puppets number one. Easily. I did a list for Joe before. Actually, let me let me dig that out real quick. I did one of those rankings that always piss people off where I'm like, worst to best, you know? Okay. And the people in the comments are like, fuck you, you prick. I hate you. So <laughs> I'm going to dig that out real quick. I don't know. I'm literally typing it into Google. I will right. fire mine off then okay, very quickly. Ahead. Number one, Ride the Lightning. Number two, Kill Em All. Number three, Master Puppets. Four, Injustice for All. Five, Hardwired to Self-Destruct. Ooh. Yeah. Interesting. I'm not a big fan of the Black Album. Uh, I went through their studio albums from 10 to 1. Uh, uh, so, like, Disarmable Mention for Lulu. Uh, number 10, Death Magnetic. Number 9, Reload. Number 8, Load. Number 7, Saint Anger. Number 6, Hardwired to Self-Destruct. Number 5, The Black Album. Four Injustice for All, three Kill 'em All, two Ride the Lightning, and one Master Puppet. So very, very similar list. Not bad. Yeah, that's fair enough. I think they got some belties. To be fair to the lads, they absolutely do. And uh, also, I disappear is a fucking jam. Oh, so moving on. Uh, top five songs. <sighs> fucking hell! Really? Oh, well, you can give me three. I disappear is in there. I'm a huge fan of Moth into Flame from the last album. Yeah, I, really. I adore that song. That to me was like, I can't believe they still have this. That's just incredible. Uh, what else we got there? Battery <laughs> Master Puppets Thinking of Metallica songs Yeah I, I don't really think of them as a song As another song band uh-huh. I was always I was always quite partial to Wherever I May Roam Would you believe Really I, think, I thought it was a belter um, I think that they say that they don't really like that song I kind of hate Enter Sandman Yeah me too And also Brock Lesnar using it for his UFC music Made no sense to me It's like Only one person gets to use that as their entrance music His name is The Sandman <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. What's your what's your go to? Um Freedom the Veltals, Fate to Black, Four Horsemen, Orion, To Live Is to Die. Orion is amazing. Orion's incredible. To be fair. That's a that's an incredible song. Yeah, that's a good list, mate. Um No love for uh, <laughs> uh Invisible Kid, no? Like that sounds like a, uh, something that didn't make the cut on Americana and just got dragged out for like... <laughs> I hide inside, I hurt inside, I hide inside because I'm 50. So we ended the the last pod with a little bit of a quiz did, on yeah. a I did okay. box office receipts. I did okay. Um, I'm not really going to ask you what the box office of a <laughs> not very <laughs> well seen documentary is. Do you know? I assume it was like $48,000 or something. I think it was like, I don't even know. Okay. Um, what I do know is the album sales. Fantastic. Well, once again, I have deliberately not researched this. The album in question, Saying Anger. Yeah. Um, Stanger. Stanger. Do you want to hazard a guess how many <laughs> albums Saying Anger has sold? Ever. Oh, well, this is 
certainly at the time in the, within the first I I, th- I guess the way that they do, they're done is like it goes within the first year but so the, hang on this isn't all time this is in the US year of release that it's sold I, I believe how many copies it's sold this is what it said on the Wikipedia page <laughs> 5 million no way off <laughs> 2 million 2 million okay yeah so we're gonna we're gonna play a little game of higher or lower <laughs> hey, do you remember the last episode when I thought Green Book made 450 million dollars worldwide it might have by now <laughs> <laughs> okay higher or lower okay. Um. so we're gonna use the acts that played at the MTV Icon so we're going to use their, their their big albums. So first up, Stained, Break the Cycle, released in 2001. Higher or lower than St. Anger? Well, I bought that album in HMV on import for 23 Irish pounds. So I, this is album sales. Not doesn't It's not how much you have paid Dave Hanready. <laughs> so if, my, if you paid 40 pounds for still, a Mushroom Head album. Is this worldwide or is this? This I w- is all US. I would pay $40, million, $40 for a Mushroom Head album. They were great. Uh, all US to date. I'm, I'm assuming today. Yes. Okay. Higher or lower Saint Anger versus Break the Cycle. Yeah. Break the Cycle higher. Yeah. Break the Cycle 4.9 million copies. Get in. He's on the outside. He's looking in. Yeah. Um, Corn. Take a look in the mirror. Released in the same year as Saint Anger. You want to go higher? Or do you want to go lower? Lower. Yep. Want to hazard a guess? 1.4. 1 million. Um... Some 41's all killer, no filler. <laughs> Higher or lower? Lower. You've got it again. Um, 1.69 million. Limp Bizkit, um, Chocolate Starfish and the Hot Dog Flavoured Water. Do you want to go higher or lower? Higher. Would you hazard a guess? 3.5 million. 6 million. Fuck. Yeah. A lot of people <sighs> bought this album. <laughs> Um, a, a major and and maybe this is unfair because some of these albums were released two years before St. Anger and you can genuinely see the noticeable Napster effect like in fairness Limp Bizkit's next album wasn't as good but it sold like a quarter of the amount um, I'll do two that aren't that aren't here Linkin Park Hybrid Theory Higher or Lower definitely higher that album was fucking huge do you want to hazard a guess 10 million 11 I was close. Yeah, follow-up album released the same year as St. Anger, 7 million. Meteora. I never realised how big they were. They were fucking Because to me, they were like Linkin Park, Papa Roach. They were, and no, they clearly Park, weren't. legitimately huge and still, up until Chester's passing, huge. One last one, an album I referenced, or a band I referenced earlier as being a, what I think a major influence on this, System of a Down's Toxicity, released in 2001. Didn't get a lot of airplay because of 9-11. Yeah. <laughs> It's a fabulous album. It's an incredible album. I prefer the first one. Interesting. It's still great, though. I think lower than St. Anger. Higher. Really? Again, released a little bit before, but you got 2.7 million. Fucking hell. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Monster numbers. Fair play to the lads. Fair play to the lads. Forget all the other albums, though. Those first two are where it's at. So, uh, best use of Metallica in a movie. Um, I'm gonna go with like there's not that many of them in fairness yeah in fairness I was like what <laughs> uh, uh, this isn't a movie I really love but I do it is one of my favourite Metallica songs so For Whom the Bell Toll in the opening scene of Zombieland is really good it's like a nice slow-mo going through basically just chaos happening alright it's, well, um, it's it's N.A. for me because I don't have one to hand I thought you were gonna say I disappear on the end credits of Mission Impossible 2 that will too. absolutely do it I love that tune uh, so as part of this research as well you went deeper as well 
you watched one more thing. Oh, Through the Never? Through the Never. Now, what is Through the Never? So Through the Never um, is a live concert film in 3D that they made in 2012. I think it was released in 2013. Um, It kind of has a little bit of a gimmick to it um, where stuff is happening on stage, like things are falling on people, which is apparently something Metallica used to do. Um, After there was an incident in 1992 where like James Heffield was literally set on fire in Montreal at a Guns N' Roses show and after that they'd used to like do little little joke things on stage where stuff would fall but it was all planned so this was kind of like the the idea for the concert movie but they also tried to like car like uh, structure a little bit of a narrative around it where Dane DeHaan was like like a roadie working for them he gets like sent out to run an errand and then a riot happens outside um I didn't catch it in the cinema, but I really would have liked it because have you ever seen a concert movie in 3D in the cinema? I wanted to see it. I think it played in Sydney World for like a week and I didn't go. Have you Have you ever seen any? I don't think so, no. I saw a U2 one before and one of my first my first uh, first gigs when I was writing for a state back in the day was to go see the Justin Bieber movie, of which I saw, which I thought was a press screening, but when I rocked up to it and I arrived and it was me and like, you know, the, the big screen in Sydney World and like 400 teenage girls and I've never <laughs> felt so uncomfortable in my entire life but the use of 3D actually is good in those situations so I would have liked to have seen it it was directed by Nimrod Antle who made Predators <laughs> classic <laughs> film not a lot else yeah it's it's not it's not it's fine I think like the experience would be seeing it in a cinema seeing it live and how does the narrative of Dane DeHaan fighting off Street Toves work out oh god like, do they I, just cut to it every now and then yeah they just like dip in and out of it um it's not very well shot. Like I actually almost went to the filming of it because it was filmed uh, when I used to live in Vancouver, and they did they they played two nights in Rogers Arena, and then they did like a makeup night where they essentially were like, "It's five dollars to go to the gig, but it's not going to be a conventional gig because we're going to have to like stop and like set up the cameras again." Um, and I tried to go but didn't get a ticket. Um, but yeah, the like the, the it's pretty. It's pretty stock again to to use a term. That's a good place to end it on. Uh, much like James Bond, no popcorn will return quite soon. Actually, as a matter of fact, why don't we have a little teaser of what's coming up next? You're listening to Compton's very own Ice Cube, Easy E, and Dr. Dre. I gotta tell you, you are witnessing history. People are scared of you guys. You have a unique voice. The world needs to hear it. They want NWA. Let's give them in WA. This is only the tip of the iceberg, gentlemen. What's going on? What do you have in that bag? Are you kidding me? You can't take that in the bus. When I'm called on, I got a sword on. This song glamorized gangs and drugs. Our art is a reflection of our reality. You guys supposed to be somewhere? And the good thing about this teaser is that Dave Higgins sitting opposite me has no idea what I've just thrown to. That's right, folks. We're going to do Straight Outta Compton. Oh. It's coming up. Oh, wow. We're going to do it. Your favourite director, F. Gary Gray. F. Gary Gray, workman-like man that he is. He's He's got he's got an interesting back catalogue, and that will be explored, along with glorified television movie, Straight Outta Compton, when we return on No Popcorn. Thank you very much, man. It's been a pleasure. I'm looking forward to putting Metallica, some kind of monster, back in the box for another five years. No doubt I will show it to another person at some point. It's, it's, it's like my ring videotape. I just got to pass it on. Yeah, you got to get out there. I have enjoyed as well. Like I don't tend to like revisit the Metallica uh, back catalog, and it's been it's been good to to dip into that. Yeah, 
there's some belters. And I will say this though, uh, listening to Saint Anger from start to finish is difficult. It's borderline impossible. I didn't. I didn't manage it. I tried several times, and whether it was a combination of working or whatever the fuck it was, I c- you can't get through it. Like that's the one thing about this album is like. All the songs are loops. They're just fucking loops. They go on for a criminal amount of time. And I wonder if it would be better received if they were a lot shorter. I think it might be. Yeah, it, it just a, an album that it sort of reminded me of. is like if this was a an itch they had to scratch, it reminds me when the Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds kind of like went off and did Grinder Man for a bit. It's like we want to make a garage rock, dirty, bluesy album. But like that album's like 40 minutes long. I feel like if they'd maybe adhered to something like that, it could have been something. Yeah, long episode for a long documentary for a long album. Thank you for listening. My name is David William Hanrady. This has been No Popcorn. There will be No Popcorn back soon. podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. At Total Wine & More, we know what pairs perfectly with summer. Go ahead, test us. What goes best with a beach trip? This crisp rosé. A pool party? Try these craft beers. Oh, you're good. Wondrous selection, helpful guides, ridiculously low prices. Total Wine & More. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you acast powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.